Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So SF-86 forms are back in the news this week. This is your security clearance form. Yeah. But if you've ever worked in a restaurant, do you know what being 86 means? Uh, I always think of 86ing as like, but I don't think of it as restaurant specific. I think of it as like axing or killing. Yeah, exactly. Like being yeah, You're done. You've been killing. crossed off. Yeah. You are no longer available to be served to customers or be but, seen in polite But society. is that just a restaurant term? I think of it as like almost like, like you know, he was fine and then, you know, we he got 86 to him. him. We, he got 86. As a, um, I've asked the magic uh, box yeah of, all uh, human knowledge of, at our fingertips exactly um uh, that is wikipedia and it says that according to miriam webster uh, 86 is a slang term used in american popular culture as a transitive verb to mean throw out or get rid of the most widely accepted theory of the term's origin states it derives from a code supposedly used in restaurants meaning we're all out of it Wow, so it is a restaurant term. We so, are not all out of Mike Flynn, though. No, we're, although Trump did <laughs> SF86. <laughs> he him. did 86 Mike Flynn <laughs> over his bad borscht. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the SF86 edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. Those are almost as in, it could be the MF86. That's actually really Flynn. hard to say, SF86. SF86. Eight, SF86. Say that six times fast. As, oh, no, thank you. I haven't started drinking my scotch yet. <laughs> we have a bi- we have big scotch news in object lessons we do. On, on this. Stay tuned for that. I mean, we're, we're sort of enjoying it, as is our want, uh, here in the Jungle Studio before that, but we will fill you in on uh, why but this scotch is this different sco- than all other this scotch scotches. This scotch is special, <laughs> and, I, and I also want to say that uh, special advance shout-out to the Rational Security listener who sent us this scotch? The, the the story will be on object lessons, but I want to say she is a model to you all. Yes. Pay attention, children. Uh, I'm here in the studio, in the Jungle Scotch studio, with my friends Ben Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and joining us this week, Quinta Jurassic, audio engineer. Hello, hello. Host, guest. I wear many hats. Not scotch drinker. Uh, it, between the audio engineering and the participation, drinking scotch as well just seemed yeah, like a lot. So but I think it would be awesome if you were like tossing back scotch <laughs> while recording Rational Security. <laughs> we're going to save that for another episode. Out halfway through. <laughs> I think, look, I, I know this is like heretical to admit, but I'm not really that much of a scotch fan. So I feel like oh, the God. other contingent of Rational, like we should bring in like, there should be like a like a gin. Uh, oh, I would be uh, very much in group. favor of that. Like look, a civil war. The, you know, yeah. The scotch in my office, uh, because that's what I like to drink while doing work. But if you guys, you and Tammy and Quinta, want to have yeah. a different drink, it, it could, seems a uh, bit weird if it's also divided by gender lines. Though, but I, I do. Want, I feel like you. we have to mix it up. I do want to point out that bo- the, that the, the bombshell <laughs> podcast, where they really spend time discussing at the outset of each episode what they're drinking. 
uh, su- you know, suggests the value of a diversity of drinks. Exactly. At- they mix it up. They think it through. They yeah, do. they do. Yeah. Well, it's we can make it seasonal. We need to have like a rosé on the podcast next week or like a, a gym with some like artisanal tonic. Or maybe whatever – the next reader decides to send yes. us. Oh, hint, hint. <laughs> or like frat party jungle juice, you know, oh, which is like Kool Aid and just like Purple whatever Jesus. disgusting hunch punch. That's what Mike Flynn is drinking clear. right now. <laughs> Mike Flynn is drinking <laughs> solo cups full of purple juice. No, Ben, ben <laughs> Mike, Mike Flynn is drinking vodka. <laughs> Mike Flynn is hanging out at Morton's drinking martinis. Um, but I don't know if it's very good. To do. It's probably vodka, not expensive vodka though. Yeah, Russian. Not from Texas. Um, This week on the podcast, Mike Flynn is back in hot water over money he took from foreign sources. Naughty, naughty. Um, It's not naughty to take it. It's just naughty not to tell anyone you took it. Not to SF-86. Not to SF-86, that money. The Senate Intelligence Committee is beefing up for a long investigation of Russian meddling in the election. And FBI Director Jim Comey is back in the spotlight again this week amid questions of how he handled the Clinton and Trump investigations. Um, let's start with MF86. So, Mike Flynn. Wait, we actually have somebody here who has filled out an SF86. I have filled out an SF86. Okay, so and, and right. I, I want to. I, let's so let's with each thing that we point out about what's been reported about okay. Mike Flynn. Let's ask Susan about how she handled that on her SF86. Okay, so here's what we learned this week. Based on the House Oversight Committee getting a hold of his FS-86 security clearance renewal form from January 2016, um, apparently he did not report that he took money from RT, the uh, propaganda arm of the Russian government. Okay, let's start there. Susan, did you on your SF-86 report all of the money you got from RT for attending a dinner in which you sat next to Vladimir Putin? I did. I, I 100% disclosed the many, many dollars that were paid to yeah. me by the Russian government. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. okay. It's, it's just, all there. There is data. I have complied data? with the okay. law. <laughs> uh, it's not- As just Jason Chavitz pointed <laughs> out at a press conference. <gasps> uh, it's yeah, Exactly. The <laughs> absence of evidence, as German Chavitz pointed out, leads him to think there's something amiss. Uh, did not, as far as we know, not that he would have done it on the January 2016 form because this work came later. But there, apparently there's no record of him having disclosed uh, money that he took to lobby on behalf of the Turkish government in the United States. Okay, Susan, did you fully disclose on your SF-86 all the money that you took from uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan to lobby on behalf of the Turkish state? I mean, I'll have to double check, but I'm almost positive that I've disclosed all of my Erdogan funds. And were those paid in in Turkish lira or in U.S. dollars? I have. I get paid Who in euros. Just you know. Yeah. I like to Simpler. keep a like a, a fund in better exchange rate. Susan, just, what a globalist faster. you are. Uh, and there's no evidence uh, that we can find that he sought permission from either the Secretary of State or the Department of the Army to take money from foreign governments as was required given that he is a former military officer. So again, when you took all this foreign money that you reported on your SF-86, did you get 
General, uh, I guess it would would have been General Alexander or more did Mike you, Rogers. I am not a retired military uniform. officer, and I do not collect pensions, so I am not. Uh, I would not be subject to the uh, foreign emoluments clause. Uh, so I did not seek permission, nor am I obligated to. Well, in that case, there you go. So foreign governments call me. Send Susan money. <laughs> I don't even need permission. Um, so a lot of this was just confirming, I think, what has largely been reported, but what it does create now is a point of very particular vulnerability for Mike Flynn, namely that he may have failed to disclose uh, relevant information on his security clearance form, which can get you sent to jail. Uh, I don't think there was any question that he was not being completely forthcoming about his contacts with the Russians. But after we now know that he has been looking for immunity from the FBI and from Senate and House investigators in exchange for his testimony, it seems to me that this might be, in fact, one of the points that he is worried about, that he might be prosecuted um, for failing to disclose you know, material conflicts or pertinent information on a security clearance form, which, by the way, he held as the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, as all former directors do. So the current director of the agency is able to consult with him and speak with him about the most sensitive information the director is handling. Yeah, so I, th- and I think the story actually gets worse for General Flynn here, not better, right? So in, remember that all of that, which is what we learned today, this week, uh, emerges against a backdrop of uh, not having registered as a foreign agent ex- until retroactively with respect to the Turkey payments, as well as uh, having apparently lied to the vice president about his contacts with the Russian ambassador in reference to sanctions in the context of these payments that uh, were not disclosed on his SF-86. And so when you put it all together, you get a, uh, pri- as a prima facie matter, a very disturbing pattern of A, foreign uh, financial entanglements with, with adversarial governments, uh, B, uh, failure to disclose them in a proper fashion, failure to do proper registrations, and three, and at least one case, active misrepresentation about it. And you put that picture together. It's a, it's a, it's a very strange picture for a guy who was the national security advisor to the president. Yeah. So I think that, um, you, people are sort of assuming that the only issue here is reporting these payments. Um, you know, the SF-86 asks a lot of questions. They ask for any foreign travel, oh, yeah. foreign contacts you've had. It's a 70-page form, right? Any form. Yeah. I think it can even populate it further. Cause sometimes it's you the say wire yes, brush it treatment. Yeah, it's everything. Right. And so, I mean, it doesn't just ask you any, um, any foreign payments. It asks if you ever have even been offered a job uh, by like by any foreigner, right? I mean, this is unbelievable. Or your spouse has been offered jobs. I mean, it's unbelievably detailed disclosure. And so this is not a thing in which like you can just Whoops! You accidentally forget to to list something. Jared Kushner this claims is, you did. <laughs> yeah, this is something that you you really like. You have to answer dozens of questions related to contacts with foreigners. And so, all we know now is that there's no evidence that he complied with the law. Uh, thank you, Chairman Chaffetz. Uh, that could mean 
a lot uh, in this space. Uh, it seems like at the very minimum, it means that he hasn't uh, disclosed these payments. And of course, he has now because he's retroactively registered under FARA. He has disclosed, right, that he accepted the payments in at least one venue. So you can hold that up against his his FS-86 forms. You know, the uh, the administration and then the Trump administration, their response to this um, appears to be uh, pointing to the fact that he was DIA director under Obama. Um, so, like, Obama people should have checked it out? Yeah, well, like, like, what, like, Obama was the first person to trust this guy. Like, you know, why are you, why are you only coming to us? Well, uh, like, it seems like pretty much everything that occurred occurred after he left, uh, after he was fired by the Obama yeah, administration. And he was fired, let's remember. Then it's, uh, you know, they're, they uh, are sort of representing that they're not responsible for anything that happened during the transition period, right? Well, it was, it was before January 20th. We weren't in the White House at the time. I mean, it was sort of this, like, this Sean Spicer was, was essentially representing that they weren't responsible for vetting their national security advisor. But meanwhile, they also like to defend the fact that he had conversations with the Russian ambassador because that's what the designated national security the the uh, other thing that uh, advisor should be doing. The other thing that's a little bit overlooked is this isn't just about the transition period. In the period of time in which he is being paid as a, a, a lobbyist, as a, as a foreign agent for Turkey, he is getting access to classified security briefings because Donald Trump was bringing him into classified security briefings with him. And so, you know, the notion that somehow this doesn't reflect on Donald Trump's judgments um, and that he isn't responsible for this, that's just absurd. The uh, There are uh, a number of explanations here, all of which strike me as really bad news for the White House. So the first one is... Uh, Mike Flynn lied on his SF-86 forms, which is a felony, by the way, and it says so right on the form. And the White House knew it and retained him as national security advisor anyway. Didn't care. Okay, that's pretty bad news. The other possibility is that they didn't know that he had accepted these payments and therefore they didn't know that the form was not correctly filled out. That sort of seemed like what Sean Spicer was saying yesterday when he's like, well, everybody's responsible for filling out their own forms. Seems unlikely because we know there was discussion about the Ferris stuff with Don McGahn, who basically said, oh, that's your own problem. And because it was publicly reported. So that suggests that they didn't even, I don't know, Google their national security advisor before offering him one of the most sensitive national security positions in the entire federal government. Google's not sense, not, not, not adequately secure. That's true. They're putting his name in. So that's bad news. The other possibility is that they knew he took the payments, weren't concerned about that, which is a whole other can of worms, but didn't realize that he'd lied on the form because they didn't see the forms. So that's not great news because it means that something is wrong with their process where they're not adequately vetting people with access to really, really sensitive information. So like my, you can see sort of the White House spinning and it's not quite clear where they're going to land in terms of their explanation, but they strike me as all bad news stories for the White House. Well, there's there's also the fact that the 
part of the reason that Representative Chaffetz and Cummings held their joint press conference yesterday was that they'd sent the White House a letter asking for information about Flynn's security clearance and any contacts he might have had with foreign officials, information with the White House then refused to provide, which also, like, again, isn't probative of anything, but really just does not look good. Actually, actually, I think it is probative. Yeah, well, in fact, Chairman Chumman's even said that Cummings said there's information of a classified nature we can't discuss, but we saw things at the Defense Intelligence Agency where you might imagine there were things like records of his travel and other things that he did after he was DIA director that were greatly troubling to us. So it's not just the SF-86. There's this other category of information that they're saying raise all kinds of questions too. And then the fact that the White House won't disclose certain information. Right. So I, I think I think the the atmospherics of yesterday's press conference are fascinating and highly probative. Uh, so Jason Chaffetz is not going to be the guy who, when backbone awards uh, are handed out, is going to be at the front of the line. Nor is he going to uh, be the chairman much longer. Right. And uh, and he's somebody who uh, has been all over the place with respect to uh, Donald Trump. And he has an extremely historically adversarial relationship with Elijah Cummings. And yesterday they were standing shoulder to shoulder, uh, professing being very disturbed by what they'd seen and by, uh, and granted he did formulate it in the double negative, but Chaffetz was, uh, uh, evidently accusing, uh, Flynn of, of, of noncompliance with the law. And the White House is refusing to give them the information that they want, which, by the way, may be within the White House's right to do. Um, they are forcing Republican chairmen who will bend over backwards to be sympathetic and to be protective of their interests, not to be sympathetic and not to be uh, protective of their interests. And that's a remarkable development, in in my view, if the White House can't keep somebody like Jason Chaffetz, um, uh, they're going to have problems with Congress in the investigative sense sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, this is this just falls in sort of the um, this like I, I see people sort of the, the question mark of so what right like what does this mean? This strikes me as as such a consequential thing. Um, the the fact that it's been occurring in plain sight uh, a little bit has masked how significant it is. Um, and that's that, you know, there are individuals within the Trump administration um, who are not confirmed in whom, you know, the, we uh, ask the president to use his judgment uh, <laughs> in ways that are enormously consequential to national security. I mean, these are these are the actual secrets you really have to keep. Um, and not just on sort of the secrecy and loyal, loyalty metric, but also people that are sensible, that right, they themselves have shown them that are, are sort of capable stewards of this information and have, have shown good judgment through the course of their career. And it really said something to me so significant about Donald Trump as president of the United States, that he hired Mike Flynn as national security advisor. Um, and that is something that 
the White House really wants to move on. They're kind of like, well, come on. He was National Security Advisor for like 20 days. What's the big deal? You know, that decision, um, it's just it's it's an important one. It's important when we sort of get to the bottom. And and the nature of political accountability is supposed to be such that he is Trump personally is supposed to hold responsibility for these these staffers. And it just it's sort of it's surprising to me how much they're getting away with just kind of shrugging this off as like, that's old news. I don't who cares about this? He lied to us. They hired this person over unbelievable red flags. Um, and and there was n- n- not enough was made about it at the time. Um, and I don't think that people are going back to sort of uh, examine the original decision uh, at this point as much as they should be. And this is a postscript to that before we go on to the next topic. Mike Flynn was also seriously considered and publicly slow for vice president of the United States. They considered him as a running mate for Donald Trump. So that would have well, been. It shows what great judgment the president has that he went with Mike Pence instead. Yeah, just, and we could have had Chris Christie. So just just ponder that and very much to your point of you know saying he only was here for 20 days. He was one of the most trusted people in the entire campaign. Well, and the real question is who else is in the administration that has serious, serious red flags that were overlooked? Um, all right. So we saw a couple of stories this week that said the sky is falling. The Senate Intelligence Committee investigation of Russian meddling in the election uh, is basically not making any progress. Uh, I, I exaggerate for dramatic effect, or maybe I don't. Um, uh, the question really is, I think it comes down to the, these various stories point out something I think all sides do agree on, is that the number of investigators that have been assigned to the committee's investigation is pretty darn low. Uh, and there probably is just simply not enough uh, <clears throat> manpower and expertise to get all of this done in a timely manner. But Ben, you did some looking into this this week and wrote about this on Lawfare as well. So what are you finding is the uh, the, 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 the sticky wickets here as the Senate Intel Committee tries to get moving, which, remember, people are sort of counting on that as the one that's going to make progress because the House Intelligence Committee, after darkness at newness and all of that, uh, Michigas did seem to come off the rails. So, look, there's there's a few things going on here, and they're distinct. Number one is the fact that this committee investigation is badly, badly understaffed. So we're talking about seven investigators here. Well, basically. seven investigators, none of whom is full-time. Right. who have on, other things to do. And they all yeah. have other things to do. The committee is uh, has competing responsibilities, and it has not notably staffed up in response to this. Now, Susan and I actually warned about this problem very explicitly when – we wrote in favor of a of a select committee as the proper investigative mechanism here. Uh, you know, this the committees of jurisdiction are not designed for this kind of investigation, particularly not if you want to get it done in a timely fashion. Uh, so that aspect of the complaint has a lot of merit. Um, and uh, Chairman Burr and uh, Vice Chairman Warner. Uh, really need to think about how they want to staff this thing, uh, both for the reality and the perception of getting it done in a serious way and showing commitment to it and, and getting it done in a timely fashion. Uh, the stories, however, have at least two other dimensions that I am much less convinced have merit. 
so one is that there are certain Democrats on the committee and the stories are, you know, aspects of them are evidently the product of Ron Wyden. Um, and um, they, you know, they are trying to uh, raise questions about whether the, the committee is really functioning in an expeditious and bipartisan fashion, uh, or whether Burr is slow walking the thing or not really committed to it. And I, you know, I am not particularly convinced that that aspect of the in that aspect of the stories and the complaints has a lot of merit. I think Burr obviously doesn't have, you know, quite the sense of urgency about it that Wyden does. Um, but, uh, I don't, I haven't seen any evidence apart from his initial stumble that he is anything other than sincere in wanting to conduct a serious investigation. Um, and the, the, the second element of it is, uh, you know, this idea that the committee is focused initially, has been focused initially on uh, reviewing the intelligence community's findings rather than, um, you know, quickly moving to interview witnesses. And on this, I am really not sympathetic to the complaint. I think that's a sign of doing your homework to really understand the state of the art of the prior art before you go rush to put somebody under oath uh, who may then demand immunity in exchange for conversation. I mean, knowing what you can, you know, what you know and what you don't know and what prior investigations have and have not produced seems to be the better part of valor. And so I'm, I'm quite convinced and in fact was convinced before these stories that there are staffing problems and they need to be resolved. And if the committee wants to be taken seriously as the mechanism uh, they're going to have to resolve these issues and they're going to have to staff it like they mean to take this seriously. Uh, the rest of it, I'm less convinced is, is a real, is anything other than the sort of members who are least sympathetic to the chairman, uh, being, uh, trying to put pressure on him by, by, you know, by making complaints that you know, may have less merit than than the fervor with which they're making them. Yes, I think it's important to note that this is all sort of unfolding against the background of, of Burr created a little bit of a hole that he had to get out of. And that was um, uh, a few months ago, weeks ago, God, time has like collapsed on itself. Um, uh, uh, at White House direction, uh, uh, Richard Burr got on the phone with certain reporters who shall remain nameless um, uh, and tried to sort of throw cold water on, on a New York Times story that um, uh, Trump uh, team or, or Trump Trump campaign officials um, had been in, I think, quote, constant contact with Russian intelligence, right? So not just Russian uh, uh, individuals, but uh, but Russian intelligence uh, officials or agents. Um, and so that was uh, uh, participating in that uh, uh, really struck a pretty significant blow to the credibility of the SSCI investigation, which had previously been viewed as, as quite serious and bipartisan. Um, since then, um, uh, so we saw, right, so Burr got in a little bit of trouble. Um, Nunez got in a little bit of trouble. Nunez decided to keep on digging and just, you know, go 
go all the way down. Um, Burr, he was exploring. Exactly. He just he wanted to see how low he could get. Um, you know, Burr, uh, I think, wisely said, you know what? Uh, maybe I shouldn't have uh, been on that phone call. Uh took a step back, uh, actually comported himself quite well and in quite a reassuring way in the SSCI open hearings, um, you know, asked serious questions, gave a good press conference with Mark Warner. Um, he, he really did take steps to try and um, uh, preserve or reinforce the, the sort of sense of legitimacy of his investigation. Um, and so I, I think that there's, right, the, the idea that Burr is, is trying to obstruct or slow walk this, that I, I agree, I'm not quite I don't see that. There is one thing that was reported that um, I do think is alarming in terms of whether or not this really is structured to be a, a credible investigation. And that's that they've determined um, that only the seven investigators are going to have access to all of the relevant classified material. Presumably, this is Gang of Eight material that we're talking about. Um, and that they will not be allowed to share them with other members of the committee. So that is not uh, usual. Um, even in investigations. But there's some they can share, right? I mean, there's some that's been made available beyond the Gang of Eight, just not everything. Right, but the, but the sort of that the understanding, or at least as reported, is not that you know they're going to go in and they're going to do this investigation and they're going to take what they find back to the to the committees and the minority and majority and be able to share with other staffers. Um, but that it's like right, this really is a closed world investigation, even within SSCI. Considering sort of already the staffing constraints, that really strikes me as one not being justified. Now it might have been a concession to the intelligence community, um, especially if it was about, hey, you want access to super, super, you know, uh, sensitive stuff here, and we aren't going to give all of your staff access to that. Maybe. Um, but in other ways, it's uh, it's hard to imagine a successful investigation operating under those constraints, because the people who uh, can conceivably be staffed to this, in, to this investigation are not the most senior members of the committee, who, by the way, have the most important other responsibilities and are are the least replaceable in their roles. And so that strikes me as a decision that uh, is is constrains this investigation in really difficult ways. Um, and I don't see a ton of justification for it um, unless for some reason the area in which they are investigating like, implicates a very, very narrow and unlikely subset of information. Um, so those are sort of, I, I agree with Ben, I, I don't quite buy it, um, especially on the Burr part. Um, but there, there, all, there are also signs coming out that this is not uh, – we shouldn't be holding our breath for, for the SSI to deliver the the masterful, you know, full account of everything that happened. We shouldn't also expect it soon. Yeah. I mean, I so this is my question is I feel like in much the same way as Chairman Nunez's bizarre behavior sort of forced Sissy to take the lead and be the adults in the room um, – we're now in this situation where Nunez has so, or Nunez so thoroughly destroyed the House investigation that there's now not only a lot of pressure on the Senate investigation to do this right, but a lot of the legitimacy in the eyes of the public of Congress's ability to investigate this issue at all 
is now writing on the Senate investigation. And so I think that means two things. I think, first off, it means that people are more likely to flip out when there are signs that something is going slowly because everyone has the sort of the amp cranked up to 11 so that when there there's a hitch, we're more likely to go to, oh, my God, this is terrible. Something is deeply wrong. We're seeing Nunes 2.0. And second, I wonder if it actually – so. Senator James Langford tweeted in response to a lot of these stories, don't confuse silence with a lack of progress. So that's really interesting because under normal situation, you might say, like, it's good to do this quietly and take your time and be careful and not be overly public about it before you have to and do the work. In this case, I wonder if there actually is paradoxically a premium on communicating clearly with the public that the investigation is going forward. Um, to keep people from panicking. The problem is that I wonder if that's actually intention with the credibility of the investigation. So I'd be interested to know what any of you think about that, because it really seems to me that they're in a tight spot. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, how much can they actually <clears throat> come out and talk about it without suddenly looking like they're opening the door to talking about an ongoing investigation? I, I can say from my own reporting, I think that people who would say that the investigation is not making progress are, are wrong. I think it is making progress. The problem is that this is a slog. And it's helpful to think about what it is that the investigation is actually looking at. And it's essentially three tranches of information. First, it's intelligence reports, including, you know, highly, highly sensitive classified source reports that were a part of the intelligence community's assessment that Russia meddled in the elections and all the things that we read about publicly. And as part of that, by the way, the investigators are interviewing intelligence agency analysts who helped write and craft those findings and asking them, why did you think this here? Why did you think that there? So they're trying to go back and essentially, you know, put themselves back in the shoes of the people who created these findings. The second tranche is stuff that, as it's been described, even Senator Warner has used this phrase that was left on the cutting room floor, that the Obama administration didn't have a chance to get to because it was in an all-hands effort to put out a public top-line assessment of Russian meddling and to achieve some, well, to achieve a consensus on that. That will be kind of the second tranche. And then the third is going to be, if they get this far, information from some of the key players. So Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, Carter Page, people who have been sent preservation requests to hang on to their emails and other relevant information. But that set of documents will be another part of it. This is going to take upwards of two years to get through all this. The FBI very well may be done with its investigation before the Senate finishes it. Um, So, you know, this is partly why it's a slog. And I think because of that, and because these investigators are part-time and not necessarily are all expert in precisely the kind of things we're talking about here, uh, you've seen now the committee, it was announced today, not by the committee, but by a law firm, that a former senior NSA lawyer, April Doss, who was the top intelligence policy lawyer. And lawfare contributor. She's the top right? lawyer for intelligence law. Right, for, for intelligence law at the NSA, is going to be a special counsel to the committee and will be working with the Democrats. Uh, but, I mean, essentially you can – I think it's probably fair to say that she will effectively become – the staff lead, if not in name, then in in, in practice for this. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the committee bring on other former officials who are now practicing law uh, to help with this and beef up uh, what is clearly, I think everyone would agree, uh, a fairly, you know, shallow bench of people that have to get this huge job done. So I also just 
want to say that I think it is a little bit too early to count out the House side, um, not because uh, there's anything to say in defense of uh, our friend Devin. Uh, there isn't. Uh, but because he's actually out of the picture. And the, you know, the House Intelligence Committee has sometimes in the past gone through spasms of grotesque partisanship. And the people who follow that period uh, often make a very concerted effort and the relationship between former Chairman Rogers and former Vice Chairman uh, Ruppelsberger to uh, really run the thing in a bipartisan fashion is an example of that. That followed a period of partisan rancor on the committee. Um, and, you know, right now you have uh, the Republican chairman having behaved in a really embarrassing fashion and having had to recuse himself. And now he has to defend that in front of the ethics committee. And, you know, the people who have stepped up to uh, follow that are cannot be unaware of the burden that is on their shoulders to make the committee look at least a little bit less ridiculous. And so when they have their next hearing coming up, and it's coming up soon, uh, and it could be very damaging to the president, um, I think it'll be really interesting to watch whether we once again see there being two completely different investigations, one that's all about the substance of the material and one that's all about leaks, or whether you have some effort to have something uh, more uh, that looks a little bit more like what the Senate side has looked like. Yeah, so look, I think um, uh, people should view April's hiring with as a as a real uh, reassurance. Um, she's somebody who is uh, really respected and has a lot of credibility within the intelligence community. Um, she was, you know, the top lawyer for intelligence, so she knows the way the law works and uh, isn't going to be uh, fooled by any kind of executive branch sleight of hand here. Um, uh, you know, she also has the the relationships with people, which tends to be really, really important in, in investigations like this of knowing who to pick up the phone and call, um, you know, when someone's being straight with you, when they aren't. Uh, you know, the, the last thing I'd say is that um, uh, I, I really do not believe that she has prejudged the outcome of the investigation. Um, so that, uh, and that's going to be critical, especially for the Democrats, um, that we've talked a lot about legitimacy on the other side, right? That is, are they really looking into it? And, uh, you know, has Trump interfered? And, and is it independent? And are they getting to the truth? There is another part where it could become illegitimate. And that's where if it actually is perceived as a witch hunt or it's viewed as, right, the Democrats the going out. Effect. Exactly. Yeah. And, and trying to find any damning evidence they can. Um, you know, she, just because she's been hired by the uh, minority, I, I really do uh, believe in having seen her, you know, having written stuff with her publicly recently and, and having, um, you know, seen her work uh, within the intelligence community, uh, that she is going to approach this uh, in a in with the uh, mindset of an intelligence officer, and that's not prejudging the conclusion and just trying to sort of get to the truth, that it that is going to be a really important part of having a credible outcome, whatever it ends up being. So FBI Director Jim Comey was the subject of a long, long New York Times profile this week, which essentially sought to, I guess, reposition reframe everything we know about how Comey behaved uh, with regards to the Clinton email investigation, the Russia investigation, the decision points at which he decided to go public, not go public. Um, I have to say it was probably, in the end, a 
pretty hard piece on Comey. I thought the upshot of which was that it was trying to, it was essentially making the case, I thought, uh, and you guys maybe will think differently, that um, there were these kind of key inflection points that you had to wonder if he had it to do over again, would he have just kept quiet or what did he think that it was the right thing uh, to, to weigh in on the progress of various investigations. One thing that I thought was probably a bit of new news and there wasn't a lot of new information in the story i thought aside we did learn the code name of the hillary clinton investigation what was it mayfair, was it mayfair? i don't remember it wasn't memorable um it that, was, that's news right there <laughs> it was mayday <laughs> one thing i thought was interesting at this is that i mean clearly the fbi did not think hillary that, that donald trump was going to win and i detected and maybe i'm just reading between the lines too much some sense that that, in fact, did have at least some influence on their decision to come public uh, for for Jim Comey's decision to go public uh, the way he did in back in July and, and give out all the reasons why that they were not they were not prosecuting a case against Hillary Clinton, but all the things that she'd done. He seemed to at least be anticipating the political reality that he thought was coming and trying to do his job at the same time. And I thought the story did a pretty good job of painting a picture of an FBI director who has been walking a tightrope for the better part of the past, you know, nine months, at least publicly with this. Um, I don't know. What did you guys think? So, look, I, I thought the story was very long relative to the amount of new information that it developed, developed and delivered, which was rather small. Um, that said, I thought the authors did a good job of describing the constraints under which he was operating and the uh, very narrow space in which he was wedged and the problems which uh, he anticipated and felt uh, would come back, uh, you know, and the effort he made to try to navigate that very narrow space operating room. Um, People are going to argue about this for a long time, whether he, you know, did the right thing, what his motives were, you know. Um, I, the article changed nothing for me, which is that I uh, believe he acted in good faith. I believe he acted in public for exactly the reasons he has said publicly that he did. I, th- I think he's a guy, one of the few people in Washington who's, essentially subtextless. That is, if he tells you he did something for reason X, it's actually because he did something for reason X. And you can, you can argue till the cows come home about whether that was a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, both in July and in October, late October, and then in November. But it's what he did. And what the story uh, reveals is that he kind of did it for exactly the set of reasons that he said he did it. Um, and so I, I actually thought the story was sort of weirdly unavailing in terms of, of delivering new information about, uh, the Comey story, because I think the Comey story was told a long time ago by Jim Comey. Yeah, so um, I also didn't think there was lots new information here. And so um, by the time I got to the end, it's, just, it's like obscenely long article. Um, I, I was reading quickly, so correct me. The memo me. to the New York Times, <laughs> editing. Tighten that up, guys. 
Um, there's the, um, so correct me, maybe like it's possible I just skipped this part, although I don't think so. Um, and that's that there's a pretty big missing piece to the story that's told in this, uh, in this article. Um, I, I agree with Ben that I, um, you know, right decision, wrong decision. Um, I, I don't think it was, I, I do believe it was undertaken in good faith. Um, the, the piece that I don't see being told that, that I think is incredibly significant, um, is the issue of, uh, leaks that came out of the FBI, uh, in the period immediately following, uh, uh the leak out of Congress about this investigation. Um, so. About the reopening of the email investigation. Exactly. Um, the so, reopening. Right. So, um, you know, what we have is, you know, the bombshell, um, uh, you know, this letter, um, and I'll say that at the time I was, um, whenever this announcement was made, I was um, uh, sitting, having lunch with an intelligence committee staffer who picked up their phone, said an, said an expletive, and said, I will talk to you later, and left the restaurant. Um, so that's why I learned of this uh, this letter for the first time. Um the uh, what happened immediately after that was there was this flood of competing leaks, like leaks and counter leaks that um, pretty clearly came out of the FBI's New York field office um, or individuals purporting to represent the FBI's New York field office, which maybe are not the same. Including thing. Rudy Giuliani. Including Rudy Giuliani, um, essentially saying that, no, 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 this is this is very, very serious. Right. There's all kinds of evidence that there's really bad stuff in here. Um, and it became pretty clear. Clear pretty quickly, at least from my perspective, that um, actually this, these group of individuals had been attempting to shop this story for some period of time beforehand, um, and that nobody in the media was willing to run with it because it turns out, one, to have been factually untrue, and then clearly it couldn't have been corroborated. Um, the fact of this letter suddenly made all of that reporting newsworthy, right? Or like it, it unleashed this set of leaks. And so I've always had the perception and, and it's an assumption and I, I don't know that at least some of the calculation into the decision to tell Congress was a fear that this might leak anyway um, and that it would be better to sort of be forthright with Congress at, at this point instead of risking uh, risking the information getting out and it looking as though uh, the FBI was hiding something. Um those leaks that occurred sort of in, in the in the days afterwards, I, I think, were incredibly damaging. I think they had as much of an outcome sort of impact on the outcome of the election as, as anything else did. And of course, we um, we can never know the counterfactual and there can be multiple but for causes. Right. So but for the Comey letter but for ignoring Wisconsin and Michigan, but for a candidate with historic unfavorables, but for right, there could be lots of things that if that didn't happen, uh, the outcome would have been different. Um, but that element of the story really strikes me as one that um, we've never had a full accounting of. Um, uh, there, there purportedly is a DOJ inspector general's investigation into sort of the aftermath of this. I don't know if that will be public, um, but that part of it, that who in the FBI uh, uh, was the source of those leaks and, and what was the role of the agency in that, in the period sort of immediately following that, that strikes me as, as really critical. And, and I don't, I didn't see it picked up at all in this story. Yeah. The story didn't really didn't deal with that. I do think you hit on though something that's a really important element of this, which is that I think part of the psychological subtext of the desire to really understand the Comey story 
is the the flip side of the uh, uh, much ballyhooed book Shattered about the Clinton campaign that was released this last week and got a lot of press. And, you know, there's sort of broadly two competing narratives, right, of the Trump victory and the Clinton loss in particular. There's the it's all Comey's fault narrative. And then there's the actually no Clinton sucked or the Clinton campaign sucked narrative. And there were big developments in both of those versions this week. One is, you know, this New York Times story, which is, you know, the sort of effort to be the definitive, here's what Jim Comey did. And the other is this kind of expose or, or, and I haven't read the book, uh, but really fleshing out just how dysfunctional the Clinton campaign apparatus really was and how, how, I mean, I believe the word doomed appears in the subtitle of the book. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I think we're gonna, we're going to have this debate and people are going to invest uh, a lot in it over a long period of time. And I just want to say, I think the debate's really stupid when you lose um, an election by a small number of, of votes in a, in a small number of states. Uh, it's a multivariate cause and you change uh, if the candidate hadn't sucked uh it wouldn't have mattered what Jim Comey did. And if Jim Comey hadn't sent a letter, it might not have mattered that the candidate was dysfunctional um, or the, the apparatus of the campaign was dysfunctional. Um, and a thousand other things. By the way, if Trump had been a little bit less brazen as a liar, he might not have gotten elected. And and I, you know, with Obama on interrogation, I want to say people should be looking forward, not backward on this. Yeah, I mean, it... Honestly, at at this point, just reading these stories about Jim Comey, what happened? Here's the ticking clock just makes me want to claw out my own eyes. It just it feels like we're in like it's Groundhog Day. It's like Prometheus chained to the rock. And every day the eagle comes and eats your liver like this new chain eternal return like every few months. Comey the rock. There's just the no. He's, I just want to point out really nobody sure ever looks is. at I that think... story from the eagle's point of view. <laughs> Eagles got a heat, got a heat, man. When you're a star, they, they let, let you, you do, do it. it. <laughs> um, no, it's grab him by just, the liver. <laughs> you know, as parts of an enemy go. It's the grab him by the liver edition. No, look, it just it feels like picking a scab. Like it, there's a Comey story, and then like two months go by, and everyone kind of like forgets about it, and Comey does, you know. Something he testifies in front of the House Intelligence Committee, and then we all talk about Comey in Russia. And then someone writes a TikTok story about Comey in the letter, and we pick off the scab again, and it bleeds a little bit. And everyone says, "Ah, Clinton, like she was terrible. No, she was great. It was coming." Like, there's this element of this that is just like reliving the trauma again and again, and it kind of feels like we're trying to figure out like where in the timeline it all went wrong so we can like get back into the proper universe but it just it feels i under i want to say i understand the instinct like from a historical perspective absolutely but it just it's so drawn out and painful and there's an extent to which it just at my my most pessimistic moments, it just feels it feels like picking a scab. Like that's well, what it is. I feel like that's also <clears throat> partly the nature of journalism too. Is that you know we often talk about it being the first draft of history, but there are second and third drafts that we create as well. And I mean, 
look, if I'm looking at this purely from the point of view of somebody who works in a newsroom that competes directly with the New York Times, everybody was looking at that story saying, yeah, it didn't have anything new in it. Uh, at the same time, I'm like, that's a pretty good idea to write that story. I mean, to do the sort of the 5,000 word try to be, as Ben put it, you know, the definitive story of what we know on Comey, <clears throat> you know, I, I also think that it, it's because we didn't learn that that much new, I think it's a it's a reflection of there are no easy answers and we sort of know the story because Jim Comey has told it to a large degree. But, you know, I agree with your point too, Quinta, that I mean it does feel like picking off the scab in part because it is a wound that has not healed and we are still seeking for answers. Right, of why exactly. did he do this and what did he know about Russia and why was there this apparent double standard if it was a double standard? And I think that does reflect to the extent that journalists are trying to reflect the questions that people are asking out there in the world, and we don't always do a great job of that, you know, some real lingering questions among the public, too, of what the hell happened? I mean, right, it just, it just feels like, like like staring at the sky and saying, like, why, God, why? Yeah, but and is, God says, Jim Comey, probably, like, over and over again. But I don't view this as, I view this as sort of a, a more uh, different people trying to shape their, uh, trying to shape the narrative sure. here. And, well, you know, look, happens. one thing that, that definitely wasn't included in this story is the New York Times's own role in in how all of this was covered. Not just the fact that they covered Clinton's emails, but actually they were the ones who ran the story saying FBI sees no ties between Trump camp and Russia. They they broke some of the most consequential stories, stories that whenever we were starting to see the early sort of little glimmers of what we now know to be really significant stories, the New York Times itself killed those stories by publishing these front page blockbusters. And so the lack of examination about their own role in this, it, it's, it feels more, it doesn't feel like this sort of uh, looking back and, and yeah. really trying to get to the bottom of it. It feels like trying to shape a narrative that that is not for which they have no but susan it's just because all the all the stories about <laughs> the negative stories about their own role those are all fake news yeah exactly no the fakest of, of yeah fake so news. they and they're only all the news that's fit to print they don't publish fake news if you say anything bad about them that's fake news therefore they wouldn't cover them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in terms of sort of the comey obsession um and i you know like look we'll see like jim comey coloring books by the end of the see uh, that's exactly what I mean. I said at the greeting card, I got a lot of positive feedback about the Jim Comey subtextless greeting cards. It's like I'm I'm email, I'm acknowledging your birthday. Um, <laughs> a lot of listeners were big fans of that. So now the coloring book will be the next one. <clears throat> Look, like it, like it or not, Jim Comey is an individual who um, in uh, significant ways will have shaped the course of history. <laughs> and that's, you know, maybe we can someday get the answer of like that he uh, that she you know, she would have lost anyway. But I think we all understand that he, um, without any of us realizing it at the time, and certainly without him realizing it at the time, um, has shaped the world. And so, you know, whenever it's, it's relatively rare that we can zoom back to the one moment in which a world-altering decision was made, even though we know world-altering decisions are made all the time. And so I do think it's it's natural to to be drawn almost obsessively to wanting to understand uh, uh, that moment in part because we know that we're gonna have, that we're going to reach those moments in the future. Um, you know, so I, I think we'll see many more Jim Comey. Uh, I don't know biographies, oh, coloring books. God help us all. Uh, for all the Action future figures. biographers, he's tall. 
Stretch Armstrongs. Call me Stretch Armstrongs. <laughs> Let's move on to object lessons. Um, <clears throat> ben, do you want to tell us the story of the object finally? So last week we had the cask strength edition where we we, we drank uh, cask strength whiskey. And Shane and I sang the praises of cask strength scotch. And uh, a, a thoroughly excellent reader... Uh, whom we have to have a shout out to to protect privacy. I'm going to keep her name out of it. But um, sent us a bottle of Aberlour uh, um, uh, non-chill filtered. Um, and it is, we are drinking it today and it is uh, lovely. It is delicious. And she and, sent it by app. And she sent it. Here's, that's the coolest thing um, about it. There's an app for this? There, there is, is an, an app, app for that. For sending whiskey to people. <laughs> and, I, and I want, so the, my, my object lesson is first of all, the bottle of scotch that we're, but secondly, they don't sponsor us or anything, but uh, I want to have a shout out to the app Drizzly. Drizzly. Where you can send a bottle of single malt cask strength Aberlour to a podcast of your choice. And Wait, you you have to show ID when you pick it up though. Yeah, as we learned. But I just I just want to say to 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 uh, it's not very often that you know we we often point out people who are not sponsoring us and call them out on it. But uh, Drizzly, uh, this one's for you because because uh, this you have enabled readers listeners to send whiskey to rational security and that is a huge public service and that reader that listener is sponsoring us too exactly in more in more ways than than we can count so thanks so much to uh to uh the listener in question and uh and thanks as well to the fact of drizzly and gosh if any (laughs) other listeners want to send us whiskey we are we are here we are at the Brookings Institution, and Rational Security this week is brought to you by Drizzly. Quite literally. In so many ways. Quinta? So I have not one but two objects, um, and they are both of the King's Two Bodies, um, or as I have termed them, the King's Two Twitter accounts, which is the subject of a piece that I published on Lawfare two days ago um, about – so Donald Trump has two Twitter accounts – he has, of course, at real Donald Trump, which predates his presidency. I believe it's from 2009. Um, and then he also tweets from at POTUS, which is the official presidential Twitter account, which President Obama held before him and was bequeathed unto Donald Trump along with the nuclear football at the moment he was inaugurated. <laughs> which one comes first and is more, and more deadly? Which which will cause the war first? That's a real question. No, so so The King's Two Bodies is the title of this book uh, uh, by a historian called Ernst uh, Kantorowicz, which is a what he calls a work of medieval political theology. It's sort of the the notion that you see in Shakespeare's history plays of the king sort of human self inhabiting this broader sort of abstracted second body of kingship in the sort of institutional sense. Um, And my theory is that at POTUS is the king's sort of abstracted institutional body and at real Donald Trump is the king's personal body. And when I started having this conversation with Ben some time ago, it started off as a joke and as we sort of spun it out, realized that there were actually some pretty serious implications to it in terms of, for example, when Trump tweets something nasty from at real Donald Trump, is he immune from suit? 
in his capacity as president, or is that a personal tweet that he mm. would not be immune for? Mm. All of these are potentially very interesting questions. They are. For example, are at real Donald Trump tweets evidence of the White House's policy? Can they be used in, for example, litigation to show evidence of the White House's policy? All of these are very interesting questions that I think Ben and I have... Well, I, I wrote and Ben sort of spruced up with a great deal mm. more mischief. Um, but they are really genuinely sort of bizarre questions that we now find ourselves having to consider seriously, I think, as a result of the sort of through the looking glass world in which wow. we now find ourselves living. It's like we need like Norm Eisen and Floyd Abrams to have a baby and then create a lawyer that can answer that, <laughs> that question. That is not it, what we need. It, 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 <laughs> um, from that horrifying thought, <laughs> I want to just say uh, this is an incredible essay and um, and it is as funny as it is serious. And uh, if you have not yet read uh, Quinta on the King's Two Bodies, uh, you really should. It is worth your time. All right. That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Follow us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a four four to five star rating. Whoa, whoa. Preferably five. Five stars or bust. 86 stars. Tell you what. Do this. Leave a four star rating and a review. Then download Drizzly. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know... Do what you will. Now, Drizzly, you need to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> we will. I'll leave Drizzly a five star rating. This right is now. just a taste, so to speak, of <laughs> what rational security can do for you. Um, I'm not sure we're selling it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's really uh, heartfelt. Le- leave us a five star rating, please, <laughs> or we will hunt you down <laughs> <laughs> and pour scotch over you and like, read you a very fire. long essay about Jim Comey. <laughs> See, that's torture. (laughs) Our audio engineering guest this week is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Mike Flynn and the 86 Rubles. (laughs) You like that? No. The Phantom Rubles, would that be better? The Missing Rubles? How about the 86th? Yeah, I need a little something. The 86 Babushkas. Mike Flynn and the no data to confirm. Yeah. You know what? Mike Flynn might be starting a band because he needs to make some money. How about Mike and Jason? Mike who? Mike and Jason. Mike and Jason, the dynamic duo. Yeah. Jason Flynn and, and Elijah. Our music is actually performed, of course, by Sophia Yan, who demands not to be paid in rubles. That is the one thing that she demands. She will not accept currency of Russian derivation, but she will be paid in drizzly. Yeah, I mean, the, the value of the ruble is really oscillating, so that's probably yeah. why. Sophia's really serious about scotch, actually. Yeah, so, you know, she needs to find Drizzly because you can also use it to order scotch to yourself, which I might do right after this podcast. <laughs> On behalf of my friends, Quinta Dressick, Susan Hennessy, and Ben Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. 